Well, tonight we have the privilege of looking at the book of Zephaniah. That's got to rank up there with the least read, least understood books in the Bible, Zephaniah. Um, it's like uh, someone said one time, hey, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hezekiah. And people were looking forever because it sounds like a book of the Bible, right? <laughs> but it's not. Um, it's the name of a king, but it kind of fits into the names of the minor prophets there. But when we think of the greatest king in the history of Israel, we automatically think of who? King David. But if I asked you who was the second greatest king in the history of Israel, who comes to your mind? I'm hearing it. Josiah. What a great name. I wanted to name one of our boys Josiah. But Kelly shut it down. I'm still bitter. She didn't want a Joe. She thought it was going to be Joe. I'm like, no, babe, we just call him Josiah. No, no, he's going to get nicknamed Joe. We don't want a Joe. I'm like, but babe, it's Josiah. What an awesome name. Well, that's who comes to my mind. When I think of the second greatest king in the history of Israel, it's got to be Josiah. He reigned over Judah for 31 years. And of the 20 kings who ruled that southern kingdom, he was far, by far the best king. Ironically, he was the youngest to ever take the throne at just, how old was he? Eight years old. Can you imagine that? How many of you guys have any eight-year-olds in the house right now? You got any eight-year-olds? You can imagine them being king? Yeah, right. Exactly. I don't think so. But as Josiah grew up and he began to seek the Lord, God used him to reform the nation of Judah and lead them to recommit their covenant, uh, recommit to their covenant uh, with him. And so I want to begin just looking at Josiah's righteous reign tonight uh, over Judah, starting with his great-grandfather Hezekiah, his grandfather Manasseh, and his father Amon. So you have to take your Bibles and go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, uh, really kind of a mirror image uh, of the kings of Israel, uh, particularly the divided kingdom, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. And uh, the book of Kings looks at it from more of a king's perspective, where... Um, in more of a national perspective, and, and Chronicles looks at it more from a spiritual perspective, more of a priestly perspective. But notice in Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, and the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So we know a lot about Hezekiah. Uh, and he was a good king, for sure. Um, and he was the one that uh, God used to run off uh, the Assyrians. Remember, Zanacharib came and was going to lay siege to, to, to Judah, wanting to invade Judah. And so Hezekiah came before the Lord with his letter, his threat letter. And uh, he and Isaiah uh, prayed and, and asked the Lord to be gracious. And that's when... Um, Zanacharib woke up the next morning and all his soldiers had died. Like 175,000 soldiers just dead. So he got on his horse and rode back 
to Assyria. <laughs> had no army. What was he going to do? And then when he got back there, his own family members killed him. And so Hezekiah led a, a righteous reign, um, except for that one faux pas, if you will, the sin when he went into the temple, remember, and he was going to offer sacrifices, and the priests were like, what are you doing? You're not allowed in here. And he said, who, who are you to talk to me like that? I'm the king. And he broke out with leprosy, remember that? And uh, it says he was a leper until the day he died. And so, unfortunately, he had a kind of a, a not the best ending to, to a good life there. But then notice in uh, chapter 33, verse 1, Manasseh, his son was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made ashram and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I've commanded them according to the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So Manasseh was probably the worst king uh, that ever reigned over Judah, rivaling only Ahab, King Ahab, right, of, of, uh, of, of uh, Israel. But notice what happened as a result of his rebellion and his leading the nation into sin. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. So God said, fine, you're going to be that way. I'm going to discipline you. And so he got hauled off to Assyria. But notice, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And he goes on there in chapter 33 to talk about some reforms that he sought to make, uh, which really didn't take at all. Um, and then... Uh, he, he died. And then notice verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. This is Manasseh's son. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh's father had done. And Ammon sacrificed all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made. And he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. But Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. And so we've got a good king, Hezekiah, who kind of ends on a bad note, right? Uh, thinking that uh, he's uh, better than uh, everyone else, and 
doesn't need to, somehow he doesn't need to obey the law of God. And so he goes into the temple and then you've got his son Manasseh who leads the nation into all sorts of wickedness and setting up uh, idolatrous places and even in the house of the Lord itself. And then you've got uh, his son Amon doing the very same things. And then here comes Josiah. Chapter 34, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Notice it doesn't say he walked in the ways of his father Ammon. They couldn't say that because his father and his grandfather were knuckleheads. right? And so he's saying, no, he walked in the ways of his father David, right? who was an ancestor, uh, obviously he was an ancestor of David, the kingly line, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the Lord. So when he was 16 years old, he, he started when he was eight, now in the eighth year, so he's 16, a teenager, he began to seek the God of his father David, and in the twelfth year... When he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved image, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down also the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. He broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. These were the false priests. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And so here he is undoing, right, all of the the sin and idolatry of his father and grandfather, tearing it all, all these altars and, 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 and idolatrous places that they had built up, he's tearing them down. And then he goes about to repair the temple. And so he, his desire is to rebuild the temple, to repair it. And uh, that's what he talks about in verses 8 through 13. But notice verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord... Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. So here was Hilkiah, the priest, who was given the responsibility to kind of lead the rebuilding of the temple here, or the restoring of the temple. And he's in there rummaging around, and he finds a copy of the law. And Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. I mean, how do you lose the Bible? Basically, that's what they're saying. I mean, they were, they were running off the rails at this point. And it was like, who cares about the law, right? The, the, the father and grandfather were just doing whatever they wanted to do. And, and they weren't even referencing the, the law or the Bible. It just got lost in the shuffle. And then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, everything that was entrusted to your servants they're doing, they have also emptied out the money which is found in the house of the Lord and they delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah 
Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book, in this book. So he reads, they read it to him, and he's like, man, we're in trouble. Tears his clothes, right? He, he humbles himself. He's broken. He's contrite. He, he knows that, they're, that, 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 they're, that they deserve the wrath of God. And so he says, hey, guys, go and inquire of the Lord. Ask the Lord, um, what's going to happen to us? And so Hilkiah, verse 22, and those whom the king had told went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her regarding this. She said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. So it was just as Josiah expected, was that uh, the only thing they had to look forward to was, was God's wrath. But, verse 26, to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Notice verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Now, Josiah takes the book, right? He grabs it and he starts reading it to the people. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in the book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. Pretty cool guy, huh? Um, what a great legacy that Josiah left. Now, with that historical background, turn to Zephaniah. And you're going to see why we just took some time to, to read all that, because you really can't understand the book of Zephaniah without that background. Notice the first verse of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, unlike most of the prophets, 
Sephani provided some background information on himself. Typically, we have said that we're pretty much flying blind, right, when it comes to knowing who these guys were, uh, where they were from, what, what their lineage was. But, but Zephaniah gives us some insight. First of all, he revealed that he was the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. Okay, and Josiah was the great grandson of Hezekiah. Here's the great, great grandson of Hezekiah, which made him the only prophet with a royal lineage. Um, which also meant that he was related to who? Josiah, right? Zephaniah and Josiah were cousins. And so he placed his ministry here during the reign of his older cousin, King Josiah. And so naturally, we, he, as, as part of the royal family, he would have had access to the palace. He may have served as a, a personal advisor to Josiah. And, and this is purely speculative, but I think it's highly likely that Zephaniah was the one behind, ultimately behind, the sweeping reforms that Josiah made during his reign. He, he was the one who influenced Josiah to, to, to do all the things that he was doing. Is hey, man, you need to go down and tear this stuff down that your dad and your granddad put up. You need to get rid of that stuff. And so it could have been that Zephaniah was kind of the wizard behind the curtain, if you will, right? Uh, encouraging Josiah to be the man, to play the man and do the right thing and honor God. Unfortunately, the previous evil kings had such a negative effect on Judah that it was beyond repair by this point. Even the national revival that, that Josiah led, that we just read about, as significant as it was, it was not enough to turn things around. It was a day late and a dollar short. And yet because Josiah was humble and he was broken and he was contrite, as we, as we read, God held off judging Judah during his lifetime. And sure enough, after his death in 609 BC, the rebellious nation reverted back to their sinful ways. And just four years later, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made his first invasion um, on Palestine, the first of three invasions. And so God raised up Zephaniah, along with Habakkuk, we've already studied him just uh, last week, um, Habakkuk and, and Jeremiah, uh, they were all contemporaries of Josiah, and they all were warning the nation of Judah that God was going to judge them through the Babylonians. And so the moral and, and, and spiritual conditions that, that are described here in this book by Zephaniah himself, uh, they, they seem to place this prophecy before Josiah's reforms, when idolatry and immorality were still rampant in Judah, so uh, some would date this book around 625 B.C., um, because it was obvious that the, the, the nation had not heeded the warnings of the previous prophets here. They didn't know, um, and, and little did they know, that Zephaniah would be the last to prophesy to them before the Babylonian captivity. They thought, hey, they were, they were kind of playing fast and loose with these prophets, a new prophet would show up and he'd say this. He'd kind of give him, you know, the, the, the gloom and doom message and, and he'd come and go and nothing ever happened. And so they're probably thinking, well, we can just keep right on going. Then. I mean, think about how practical that is, right? When, when we're dealing with some sin in our life, right? And we get confronted or we get warned and, and, and we don't do anything about it and then nothing happens, right? We just keep right on going. And uh, you never know when the other shoe's going to fall, as they say. 
And so they didn't realize that Zephaniah was the last prophet that God was going to send to them before the Babylonian captivity. And so the main message of Zephaniah is that God would certainly judge Judah for their, certain, for their sinful rebellion, and divine judgment would come through the Babylonian invasions between 605 and 586 B.C. And so our title tonight is Zephaniah, God's Certain Judgment. No way around it, you're being judged. That's the message of Zephaniah. And much like Joel, if you remember Joel, we looked at him several, I guess a couple months ago now, uh, Zephaniah referred to the coming judgment as, what did Joel talk about? What's the theme of Joel? Joel, remember? The day of the Lord. And so here's Zephaniah talking about the day of the Lord. Seven times he mentions the day of the Lord in these three chapters more than any other prophet. He talks about the day of the Lord even more than Joel. Joel's kind of known as the prophet of the day of the Lord, and yet Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord even more. In fact, notice, uh, look, at, look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Here's one of the most vivid descriptions in the Bible of the day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. And so we're familiar with the day of the Lord, that term, the day of the Lord. It's, it's used multiple times, both in the Old and New Testaments. And, and generally speaking, when we talk about the day of the Lord, it's just talking about any time that God intervenes in time and space to judge sin. That would be described as the day of the Lord. Specifically, the day of the Lord also refers to a particular historical event when God poured out his wrath on sin. For example, the Babylonian invasion, the Assyrian invasion of Israel, the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Those were, you could call both of those events the day of the Lord. It was a day of, of specific judgment. But ultimately, we know that the day of the Lord refers to what? The ultimate day of reckoning, right, for mankind before God, it's an eschatological event in the future when God will unleash his wrath on the world during what we know as the great tribulation, and he'll send his son Jesus Christ to destroy all his enemies and restore his people and set up his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And so typically, whenever the day of the Lord is used or mentioned in the Old Testament, there's a, a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. And that's important when you're studying biblical prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. There's, you know, when, when Zephaniah was talking about the day of the Lord, uh, he, was, he was talking specifically about the Babylonian invasion, the judgment of God through the Babylonians. But we know that he was also, right, under the inspiration of writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he was prophesying about the far fulfillment, which is what's going to come in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And we're going to see that play itself out as we read through this book together. 
And so here Zephaniah is warning the people of Judah that the day of the Lord or judgment day was certainly coming, first upon them and then upon the surrounding Gentile nations and ultimately ultimately upon the entire world. And at the same time, Zephaniah was comforting Judah and provided them with hope that after the judgment was over, God would bless them again. And the blessing would come in the person of who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would restore the nation of Israel and set up his kingdom here on earth and reign for a thousand years. And we're going to see a beautiful picture at the end here in chapter 3 of the millennial reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. And so basically the theme here uh, is, is very typical of a, of a prophet. Uh, you have desolation to deliverance. You have cursing and blessing. And, and really, the book of Zephaniah provides a, a summary of all the fundamental thoughts of judgment and salvation, which are common to all the prophets, uh, both major and minor prophets, and just kind of in a little, in a little microcosm here in these, in these short three chapters. And so the way we could break this, this book down, uh, you could just break it into two parts here. You've got the day of desolation. Uh, that's chapters 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, the day of desolation. And, and what you see in, those, in that first half of the book, or the first two-thirds of the book, I should say, is just judgment. It's all about judgment. Judgment on Judah, judgment on the nations, um, judgment on the world, judgment on Jerusalem. It's judgment, 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 judgment. And then at the end of chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, you see the day of deliverance, where you see the salvation of the Lord. Again, very typical um, prophetic motif where it starts with judgment, ends with salvation. And so let's look at this just quickly tonight. Um, first of all, the day of desolation. And uh, what we have here in the first, like I said, two-thirds is all about judgment. First of all, notice he mentions judgment on the whole world. Verse 2 of chapter 1, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll remove man and beast. I'll remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So, I mean, talk about uh, just starting big, okay? He's starting broad here. And he's just saying, hey, you know what? The Lord is going to judge the entire earth. Probably the people of Judah like those first two verses. They're like, yeah, preach it, Zephaniah. Yeah, you go, man. We agree. Yeah, God's going to bring judgment on this, on this wicked world. See, the nation of Judah had thought that because they were God's chosen people, that they were above God's judgment. Judgment was for the Gentiles. But they were soon to find out that God would not judge his people any less severely than he did the other nations of the world. That he would judge them along with the rest of the world and, and bottom line, listen, is if you reject God, you will experience his wrath no matter who you are. Whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. And so notice how he describes here the judgment on, on Judah. And again, notice as we read this how, how they had become stagnant and complacent, not to mention proud and arrogant. There was this attitude of invincibility. That, hey, we're God's people. You can't touch us. Verse 4, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah, 
In other words, judgment's starting with the, with the people of God here. I'm going to judge the whole earth, but I'm starting with Judah. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I'll cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops of the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, a false god. In other words, <coughs> in other words they're worshiping, excuse me, worshiping God and, and these other false gods. And those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or, or inquired of him. Notice he says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests, then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, all who clothe themselves with foreign garments, and I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who will fill the house of their Lord with the violence with violence and deceit on that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills." By the way, all these references to Jerusalem, very specific details, um, make, make commentators believe that, that uh, he was from Jerusalem, that Zephaniah lived in Jerusalem, very familiar with the city. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced, all who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will, do good, uh, will, will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their house, houses de- desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. And so Zephaniah's message here was, was uh, a shocking message. It was a doom and gloom message. In fact, I just read for you verses 14 to 18. We won't read those again. But, but it was all designed to pierce through their arrogance and their complacency and, and, and really to be a wake-up call to this slumbering nation and lead them to repentance. His purpose was, was not to drive them to despair here, but to drive them to God and to their, to their duty, not to frighten them, but to encourage them to repent. And notice Chapter 2, verse 1, this is an amazing invitation. In the midst of this, this, hey, judgment is coming, judgment day is coming, notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1, gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. In other words, before this comes down, before the judgment of God falls, the day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, what are you to do? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You have to wonder if that's why Josiah responded the way he did to the word of God. He responded with humility and brokenness. Um, when you got a when you got a friend like Zephaniah, right, who's going to stir you up and encourage you and challenge you, that's how you respond. But notice what he says here: humble yourselves, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you know what Zephaniah means? You ready for this? This is really cool. Yahweh hides. Yahweh hides. And again, here's a prophet. It seems like um, 
God picked these guys with names, right, who matched their ministry. And so here he is. This is an invitation by Zephaniah to find shelter in God's mercy, to, to, to hide in the Lord. The, the day of the Lord was, was coming and, and nothing could stop it. But if, if the people would repent, God would provide a, a place for them to hide. He, he would preserve them through the hour of testing and, and usher them into his glorious kingdom is what he's saying here. We'll come back to verse 3 at the end because there's a great invitation for all of us in that invitation to the nation of Judah. Notice after talking about the judgment on Judah and giving this invitation for them to repent and to seek the Lord and find refuge in Him, now he goes on to talk about judgment on the surrounding nations. God was not only going to rain down judgment on Judah, but also the Gentile nations all around her for the awful way that they had treated her. And so it's like a, a compass here, and, and you see the, the north, south, east, and west here uh, in verses 4 through 15. He begins with the people of Philistia for Gaza uh, to, the, to, the, to the west there of Judah, for Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it in the houses of Ashkelon. They will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune." And so here's God's judgment on Philistia, or the Philistines, to the west of Judah. Notice, notice he goes now to the east to Moab and Ammon. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of God, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. So in other words, you mess with God's people, I'm going to mess with you. And then he goes to the south, to Ethiopia. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation parched like the wilderness. Now he's moving north into Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Flocks will lie down in their midst, all beasts with which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I, I am and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. We talked about how Nineveh was this, this uh, impenetrable city, or so they thought with these 100-foot 100, 100 walls so thick that you could ride three horse-drawn chariots around it. They had moats and you know, uh, towers and all this kind of stuff. So he's talking about how Assyria and Nineveh will be judged. But then notice in chapter 3, he gets even more specific. Not only is God going to judge Nineveh, he's also going to judge, you ready for this? Jerusalem. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to her who's rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. He's calling Jerusalem the tyrannical city. She needed no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes with her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I've made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I've appointed concerning her, but they were eager to corrupt all her deed, all their deeds. And so he's talking about Jerusalem there, even though it's not specifically stated. Um, it's, it's clear that that's a woe to Jerusalem. And then notice verse 8, he goes back to the whole world. This is, he comes back where he started, comes full circle. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. That's exactly what he said, right? In verse 3 of chapter 1, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. So he's talking about how God's going to judge the whole world. That's the bad news. That's the day of desolation. Okay. Now look at the day of deliverance. Listen to the salvation that will follow God's judgment. Verse 9. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. And then Zephaniah challenges them to shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In the day it will be said, Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They, come, they came from you, O Zion. The, the reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and, and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." Question, has any of that that we just read, verses 9 through 20, been fully accomplished or fully fulfilled? No. And so we know that he's talking about the future of Israel. And, uh, and, and I think we need to understand this, that if all, did, let me ask you this question, did, did all 
the cursings, all the promises of cursings on the nation of Israel come true? Did God fulfill those? He said, hey, if you don't get your act together, Assyria is going to come and destroy you. Babylon is going to come and destroy you. Did that happen? Absolutely. Without question. Right down to every I dotted, every T crossed, it happened exactly the way God said. So why wouldn't we also believe that every promise of blessing that God gave to the nation of Israel would also be fulfilled someday in the future with every I dotted, every T crossed? Some want to just throw out the, the, all the promises of Israel and, and say, you know, of blessing and say, well, they blew it. They're done. God's done. God washed his hands of Israel. They're, it's over. And now all these blessings are for the church. And I think what I love about the Old Testament prophets here is they make it so clear that there is a future for the nation of Israel. And so here, as one commentator said, through Zephaniah, God gives us a glimpse into the millennial kingdom, the time when the Messiah will rule the earth in perfect peace and righteousness, when as one great body, the redeemed will lift their voices to God in praise and adoration, when judgment and heartache will be a distant memory, when love and joy will rule the day. And again, here, like I said, we're, we're, we're getting a glimpse into uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes and he uh, brings all the people, all the believers together, uh, he, he, he brings Israel to himself and he reigns over Israel, reigns over his people for a thousand years before the great white throne judgment and all those other things are going to happen. Isn't this so typical of prophecy? Bad news, good news. Bad news, good news. And these concluding verses really shine like a shaft of light as the, as the storm clouds, as the thunderheads were beginning to gather over Judah. Here was this, this, this shaft of light just, just piercing down uh, into Jerusalem, if you will. And, and, and sadly, the judgment of Zephaniah that he predicted came very quickly. Um, Josiah died, like I said, in 609 BC, and just four short years later, the armies of Babylon invaded and took over Judah. Why? Because Judah did not heed the warnings of Zephaniah, and not just the warnings of Zephaniah, nor any of the prophets that came before him, and so they experienced the discipline of God. So my question is, has anybody been warning you lately about something in your life? Maybe uh, you're, you're, a, you're heading towards a cliff. Oftentimes we do that. We're, we're, we're insane. We make no sense. We make decisions and we, we set courses that are heading you know, right off a cliff. And you've got people in your life that are saying, hey, what are you doing? Uh, you're, you're, going, you're going in the wrong direction. You, you, this is not going to end well. You got anybody in your life telling you that about anything? Questions, are you heeding them? Are you, are you listening to them? Don't be the nation of Israel or the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 2, she heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. 
You don't want people to think of you when they read that verse. Oh, that, that sounds like so-and-so. Don't ignore the warnings of God through the people of God or you'll end up experiencing the discipline of God. Don't ignore the warnings of God through the people of God or you'll end up experiencing the discipline of God. And by the way, the Lord warns us in different ways. It's not always through a person. It could be through a verse you read. Uh, It could be a situation that you observe in somebody else's life. Somebody who's maybe doing the same thing or done the same thing that you're doing or thinking of doing, and, and you see kind of what happened to them, that's a warning from the Lord. That's God's mercy. That's God's grace. Go to school on that situation. Don't think, uh, well, they, they just were, they weren't as smart as I am. I won't let that happen to me, right? Don't ignore the warnings that the Lord puts in your life. God has all sorts of ways to warn us, right, to get us back on track. Another application, probably the greatest, biggest application for our lives from the book of Zephaniah is just to understand this, that the Bible says there is coming a day when God will pour out his wrath on mankind for our sinful rebellion against him. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God will be revealed, right? That doesn't sound like good news, that sounds like bad news. It is bad news. But the good news is this. If we're willing to humble ourselves and acknowledge our sinful rebellion and believe that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to endure His wrath in our place on the cross, then we will be rescued from His wrath. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When we receive Christ as our Savior, He becomes our shelter. And when God's wrath comes, we can find safe refuge in Him. He he becomes our hiding place. I heard a true story of some some firemen who were uh, walking through a burned-out area uh, in in California. There was a forest fire, and they were just coming through, putting out the hot spots. And and, and they were walking through all the smoldering uh, you know, uh, forest, they, they came across this, this bird that was just scorched on the ground and it obviously had been burned as the fire had, had rushed through, uh, just, just, just burned alive. And so the fireman just kind of kicked, kicked the bird over and when he did, all her, her little chicks came scurrying out from under her. And she had basically died, right, protecting her chicks. And those chicks had found a hiding place from the fire. And what a beautiful picture, right, of, of Christ, right? We're, when we're, we find our hiding place in Christ, he, we're, we're under him. And he takes the heat, he takes the wrath of God as it passes over. This is the gospel according to Zephaniah. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. In other words, do this 
right? Seek the Lord before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So this is the message for us tonight. If you're not a believer, right, the wrath of God is coming. And before it gets here, you need to seek the Lord, humble yourself, admit that you're a sinner, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and He will be your shelter. He will hide you. He will shield you from the wrath of God. What a beautiful picture here, again, from a not-so-minor prophet. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for Zephaniah, just an obscure book that most of us probably never even read, uh, let alone understood what it was talking about. But I pray just in this little brief overview that we would be encouraged just again by the gospel, that we see that the message of salvation, just, it's, it's all over, it just permeates the scriptures. And it's so clear here in Zephaniah. And we're, we're thankful, Lord, that while there is the gloom and doom of a section of your word that, that, that promises judgment um, and there's, there's no way around it. There's, there's a ray of hope and that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we will humble ourselves and, and seek your face and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Lord, that we don't have to fear the wrath to come, but we'll know that we can hide in him. And I pray, Lord, if there, for some reason, is anyone here tonight who's never truly trusted Christ, that, Lord, just the simple message of Zephaniah would, would be an encouragement to them and a challenge to them, Lord, to, to want to come to Christ tonight. We pray this in his name. Amen.